At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. Guys, what's up? This is me, Dan the Fitness Man, hoping you are doing well and you're keeping your mind right. And we're going to do an awesome podcast today, as promised. We are going to sit down with none other, George Bettis. He is out of Montana, just south of Missoula. He's 78 years young. This guy's a living legend, and he's done some things. So we're going to learn a little bit about his background today. I don't want to spoil the whole podcast, but basically this guy's got an incredible journey working with Washington State Fishing Game, Montana Fishing Game. He's been working uh, with commissions, talking to commissions, getting bear seasons adopted, uh, working on elk seasons. The guy is responsible for a lot of conservation. He's even been the CEO of Boone and Crockett. The guy is crazy, man. Like he was the co-founder and past president of the Mule Deer Foundation, like a former chair of board for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. He's like, uh, he's been a coordinator, lead instructor for Montana Hunter Advancement Programs. He writes an article in every Western Hunter magazine about horses. He's originally from Washington, went to Washington state university that's where he got his phd and he actually worked there the guy has done so much for conservation uh, not only in washington state but in all the states out west uh, i can't even go over all the things he's done but i should mention that he was definitely one of the former chairs of the montana fish and wildlife and parks foundation board uh, working with grizzly bears we're going to get into all that stuff but the guy is the guy's incredible he just puts out so much for conservation and he's an incredible hunter so we kind of talk about the history of elk hunting and bear hunting and just really get to know his story. This is an awesome podcast. He's on Instagram. I'll leave a link to his account in the show, and I'm really excited to have him on. Let's cover some business real quick. In case you guys didn't know, this podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics, and those guys are hooking it up for you listeners. 20% off any Vortex apparel if you use the discount code ELKSHAPE. That's outstanding. I'm going to go through a couple more call to actions just so you can hear these and we'll just run down the list. So Black Ovis is elk shape and that will get you 20% off except for Sitka gear. If you need to buy Sitka gear, pick up the phone, 
call Black Ovis. Tell them you're an Elk Shape Podcast listener and you'll want to be hooked up and uh, they'll take care of you. Wilderness Athlete will give all our listeners 30% off your first order from Wilderness Athlete. Try the Alert. Try the Hydrate Recover, the Brute Force post-workout. That's Those are all golden standard in my book. Discount code is ElkShape30. Sleep systems from Climate. Elk Shape 20 will get you 20% off. So get your new sleeping pad or maybe a tent or what have you. Backcountry e-bikes, they're now known as Baku. Elk Shape 400, if you're going to invest in an e-bike, get one made by hunters for hunters with top-end accessories, top-end components. And I've put the thing through a few bear seasons. I'm super impressed. At Lakewood's given a discount for like the bow case. Get the double bow case and that's Elk Shape 2020. That'll get you 10% off. Hopefully you're starting to figure out where you're going hunting this year. I did not draw New Mexico again. I think I have 13 years straight of unsuccessful. Thank you, New Mexico. Still waiting for Wyoming to come out with their results here. I think towards the end of May, pretty late. I'll be putting in for Washington's uh, trophy hunts, if you will. And I got to finish up Nevada, get that application. And I can't put in for elk for another five years. And so that's where I'm at. My season's starting to take place. I do have a Montana tag. I do have an Idaho tag. So I'm I'm good. I'm happy, but I would love to top it off with one more. Hopefully you guys are having better luck than I am. And um, as far as, you know, big announcements, news, exciting things, we're looking at uh, – Gosh, I've been out shed hunting, bear hunting, and when I'm not there, I'm making awesome YouTube videos with my homeboys. So check out our YouTube channel. We're crushing it. I think we're uh, we're knocking on 13,000 subscribers, and we're trying to put out two really good videos a week. They usually have something to do with technical archery or getting ready for elk season, whether it be from a shooting standpoint a scouting standpoint, a physical fitness standpoint. Plus we do some other things as well from like e-scouting to working through injuries. So check that out if you haven't. And uh, yeah, that's what I got for you guys. Uh, Elk Shape Camp, Denver, June 12th through the 14th. Elk Shape Camp, Wisconsin, July 10th through the 12th. If you want to sign up, I think there's like two spots left at each. Pull the trigger, get after it. And if you can't make it to a live camp, do Elk Shape Camp online. We upload videos every week to that private platform and you'll get a year access to digest all that content. And we have most of the videos from all the camps we've already done up to this point posted on there. So you got a lot of material to to go through from calling to reading maps to picking out where to go, creating a hunt plan to the physical fitness, the nutrition, all the elk vocalizations. It's pretty deep, pretty thorough. So that's what I got for you guys. We're going to get into the podcast with George Bettis. You guys have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. Thank you for choosing us. Have a great week and I'll catch you at the end of the show. I'm excited to have you on. I'm going to introduce you in the beginning, but uh, I read, I did a little homework on you. So my good friend Dirk Durham said, Dan, you got to get George on your podcast. Dude is uh, a living legend. And, um, I know that's probably not your favorite thing to hear, but man, you've you've done some things and uh, quite the conservationist. So, can you kind of give us an an overview of where you grew up and how you got into the outdoors? Well, I grew up in a small uh, farm in the Tianaway area near Ellensburg, Washington, and um, you know, it, it, 
we had uh, a lot of mule deer on our place, no elk. And that time there were hardly any elk in the Tianaway. And so I got, I got into really hunting because of a lot of Seattle guys would come over and hunt mule deer on our place. And uh, there'd be a, a number of different guys. And this one guy, Wes Kiesling, he was a, he worked for Stan Sayers on this, on the hydroplane boats. And he was an engine a guy on slow-mo for the first one and then up to Hawaii Kai and all that. But anyway, he was reloading and he was real interesting and he'd always come and get a deer and my little brother and I, we'd help him get it out and stuff or my dad would take the tractor up and get it out. So that's kind of where I got started. Uh, I didn't do, well, we hunted a little bit uh, at that time. And then when I was in college, I hunted a lot of birds over at WSU in Pullman and, and, uh, and uh, finally I, I bought a 264 Winchester in when they first came out in 63 and uh, shot a deer with that. And uh, then it was stolen from me my senior year in college. And after that, I went into the Army and during the Vietnam era, I was in ROTC and served in the Army and uh, really didn't. I hunted in Texas when I was down there, uh, mostly for birds and, and things. But then I came back and uh, went on to WSU to start my doctorate. And uh, that's when I really first started hunting uh, big game. And uh, I, uh, I killed my first bull elk over on Manashtash Ridge out of Ellensburg in my six point, the fall of 71. And, uh, or actually it was fall of 70. And then after that, I started, uh, I met a, a veterinary student who, I uh, was talking about these giant mule deer bucks in Hell's Canyon and uh, went down there with him one summer and uh, there was, it was an unbelievable place. Uh, they'd had a two deer, uh, a two deer limit in there for bucks. Uh, and I found out about uh, the area really through this vet student, but then there was a guy by the name of George Doval that wrote, a ma uh, he's still around, and he did a, a magazine or actually a newspaper called The Outdoorsman. And uh, he had all of these mule deer statistics in there. And this one unit down on the Salmon River was uh, particularly good in terms of the buck to doe ratios. And so anyway, I got started, I uh, went down there and met some of the landowners and got invited to hunt and really hunted, uh, mule deer down there and guys you know during that really good time they did away with the two deer uh, season but uh, also we were hunting black bear up in the Locksaw country and at that time there were a lot of bears in Idaho uh, so uh, started spring bear hunting and then a natural kind of branch off of that was to backpack into the Clearwater country looking for bears because we learned that the bear, the big boars would come into the elk calving areas and, and hunt the calves. And um, there's a guy by the name of Mike Schlegel. He was the biologist and he was, he was, uh, he had a bunch of t uh, elk calves up there with collars on them. And uh, he was looking at the, air, the, the bear depredation and studying that. I got to know Mike and uh, saw a lot of his data and I learned the best time to hunt bears was four o'clock to dark because that's when that's when they were most active. And so we uh, backpacked all over up there. And then in about uh, the spring of about 70, 
far, 75, 70, I guess about 74. We went into an area back there in Kelly Creek and it was, it was a huge basin. It was an unbelievable place full of elk. You could see 200 elk and just in the evening. The cows would be out with their calves and it was about a 12 mile backpack in there. And so I really got interested in, in elk and uh, started trying to figure out, you know, well, how am I going to get in here to hunt elk? Because I'd been backpacking and I'd backpacked a lot of elk quarters uh, in different areas. And so I just decided, well, and at the time when I was in Pullman, I bought a place out in the country where I could have a couple horses and found a guy that uh, had some horses, need some pasture and traded him to take me in there one summer. And it was, and I decided, well, if I'm going to hunt elk seriously, I need to figure out, you know, everything I need to know about horses and packing. And so I learned all that over the next several years um, and just learned to pack. Uh, when I first started going in there, I, um, we would walk in and lead a pack horse and we, and we, you know, we packed like sheep herders in those days, you know, we had a Decker saddle and, and we'd tie stuff on. We, we learned by, you know, the, the college of hard knocks, but anyway, uh, I was still hunting mule deer down the salmon river and Hell's Canyon. And then we'd hunt spring bear every spring in Idaho. And then of course started elk hunting in there. And I put together, a a group of guys, I picked three guys. Uh, one guy was a veterinarian. His wife was my secretary at Washington State. He was in vet school. And then there were two guys, uh, Andy Rogers owned Alaskan campers there in Tukwila. And a guy by the name of Bob Smith is uh, a uh, orthopedic surgeon from up by Mount Vernon. They were packing with horses and going into Oregon and hunting down in the Blue Mountains. And I got to know Andy and so the four of us put together, a, a, you know, a group, and uh, we went in that country, packed in there every year for about 12 years. Uh, it was an unbelievable place. That, at that time, the Clearwater herd was at its peak. Um, our typical scenario would be to get at the trailhead on, on Monday afternoon, uh, pack in about 12 miles on Tuesday, and we'd hunt Wednesday Thursday and Friday and pack meat Saturday and go home Sunday. And, you know, we hunted hard. Uh, it was, it was like a military camp. We strategized every night and uh, we got, the four of us got 40 bulls in the first 10 years and, and nobody shot somebody else's elk. It was an unbelievable place. Oh my God. So that's where I, that's where I got going. And then, uh, I started coming to Montana uh, Thanksgiving uh, at WSU. Uh, I was an administrator there and, and got a job there as a as a as administrator in this, in student housing and residence life. And so we had Thanksgiving week, and so I started coming to Montana and hunted all over Montana from one end to the other. Wow. So that's kind of a quick summary. Yeah, I like everything I heard there. Um... Yeah, you are a living legend. So let's get into some of your things you mentioned real quick. How long did you serve in the service? I was in for two years. I was a, a second lieutenant in air defense artillery. Okay. And what did you get your doctorate in at Washington State University? I got it in higher, higher education administration and architecture. 
Jeez. Okay. And then what was your career once you graduated Washington State? Well, I was the director of residence halls there. Um, I got hired the second year I was there working on my doctorate as an assistant director. And then I was hired as the director. And then later on, I was hired as the, uh, I was advanced to the uh, Dean of Student Affairs position. And then when I uh, retired in 2002, I was the vice provost for student life. And that involved working, you know, uh, coordinating all of the student services, everything from the health center to the counseling center to housing and dining and so on. So, Okay. And then you said you grew up near the Tianaway. There was no elk. Obviously, there's elk there now. Uh, do you know the history of how those elk eventually landed in there? Now, that's in Washington State for everybody listening. Can you give us a little background on that? It was interesting because uh, I, I remember seeing my very first elk in 1958. Um, you know, I was like a sophomore in high school. <clears throat> and and uh, I went up on, the, on our property on our, and in the timber on, there, on our place there. And there was a, a five-point bull lying under a pine tree. He just lay there and looked at me. It was the first time I'd ever seen an elk, and and my dad had a had an old uh, skull plate of a spike on one side, two point on the other that he'd killed in the Tianway probably 10, 15 years before, and that was the first elk we ever saw on our place. Well, the elk started to to take hold in the Tianway, and uh, the, they they started to get more and more elk and so on. The fishing game at the time was managing the Tianaway, the whole Tianaway area there, the Swak, Blewett Pass, were managing it for mule deer. And so they wanted to get rid of the elk. And so every fall, they'd have uh, an open season, uh, either sex, and trying, trying to really reduce the elk herds. And... Uh, they shot a lot of cows in there late like that, and uh, I mean, we did as well. Um, and so uh, after that, the I think when Larry Cassidy kind of came on as the director, the philosophy started to change, and they wanted it to, to uh, you know, have a, a normal elk season in there and uh, not, you know, not trying to annihilate them every year out of the Tianaway because the elk, they couldn't get rid of the elk because it was really good elk habitat. So it was in the early 80s, I was asked to serve on a, uh, on a, on a lay advisory board. There were, there were uh, nine people, three rifle hunters, one of which I was, three muzzleloader hunters, and three bow hunters. And we worked for two years and, and put together the original uh, scheme to have uh, one, to go to, to spike only for bull elk in Washington, most in eastern Washington. And then uh, we, we did what they called the resource allocation program, to, re, to allocate the resource between bow hunters, rifle hunters, and muzzleloader hunters. And we came up with a, with a formula that had to do with how lethal your weapon was. Okay. The more lethal your weapon, uh, the shorter your season, yada, yada. And that, and that provided the background for the spike only, and from that point, uh, you know, it was a drawing for, for bulls, for branch bulls about five or six years later. Now they're on my farm where I grew up. You know, there's 350, 380, 400 class bulls there every year, and they're, I've got them on my, on my game cameras. The only problem is 
you can't draw a tag. No, you cannot. It's really difficult. I've got a couple of friends, uh, you know, that have killed 400 class bulls in there, but it's really difficult to draw that Tianoe tag. But it's a great tag. Well, yeah, I, I tell you what, man, Washington, I'm a resident. It's a really tough state to be, uh, to be a, I guess, a diehard elk hunter. Uh, you know, I'm in Spokane. I'm on the east side, so they divide the state into a east and west, and a lot of the stuff out here is spike only. And um, I just think we have a lot of – we have a high-density population, so you have a percentage of those are hunters, which – Obviously, means we have a lot of hunters per se, and uh, to vie for a, a tag is difficult to to get something quote trophy. But there's there's some hunting to be done, and uh, I just don't hunt much in Washington, to be honest with you, George. Uh, I don't like waiting several years for a decent tag, and um, there's just better seasons and better in other states. So uh, I do like Washington, though, and I and I want to say, you know. You said something about the Menash Tash Ridge that you killed an elk on there. That's just outside of Ellensburg. I think that's uh, just to the southeast uh, or southwest of Ellensburg. Correct me if I'm wrong. And tell me about that country and, and what that hunt was like. Well, it was, uh, and at that time, there were not a lot of hunters. And uh, well, the elk hunters would flock over from Seattle. And when the elk came down into the valley, they'd have these unbelievable shootouts. And so opening day, you always wanted to try and get up there. And I had a, a new Chevy Blazer at the time. And my brother and I and my dad, uh, we got clear up on top of Menash Tash Ridge and uh, just dropped off in there and we're hunting. And, and um, in those days, you'd, you'd split up and just you'd hunt through the woods. You'd still hunt through there and. Uh, I'd never hunted it before and my brother had, but my brother had. So we had some ideas about where to kind of where to look. And there was a big basin in there. It's beautiful. And, at the, you know, and a lot of guys would sit by a fire. They'd start a fire where, on a, where they had a strategic uh, point to look from. And they'd sit by a fire and elk could come by. They'd shoot it. Well, anyway, I went down in there and I, I jumped a bull out of his bed and killed him. And um, then, of course, my brother and I backpacked him out. Oh, okay. But that was it was a one-day deal. Uh, just, uh, you know, like a lot of guys do around here in Montana, they drive out for the morning in the dark and go out and hunt and, and so on. But that was that was fairly simple. But, you know, over the years, I, after, well, I started hunting Idaho every year, and I have hunted every year since the early 70s. And um, you really learn – you learn elk. You know, I heard your, your podcast with the guys from Stuck in the Rut. Those guys have got it figured out. I really admire those young guys because they have it figured out. And, you know, we figured it out uh, in there in the Clearwater. Uh, elk, there were a lot of elk, there were a lot of bulls, and the season was open around the 28th of September in those days. And so the bulls were bugling. Now, the first bugle I ever used was one of those it was a curly cue kind of a thing it, you know it it was uh, like a like a little pipe and it made this wee sound well we messed around with bugles and i learned how to make one out of a piece of pvc pipe and you know started learning to make bugles and and uh we bugled in a bull one day just blowing across the top of a 30-odd six case if you can believe that i can I can. I've heard 
my uh, my uh, my father-in-law's father, uh, rest his rest in peace. There, he uh, he would whistle bulls in with his mouth in the seventies, just straight whistling. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, and at the time, uh, at that point in time, the bulls were very vocal. And and by the twenty eighth of September, the, the bull would probably have his herd of cows together, and uh, we ended up getting most of our elk by spotting and stalking. We we never that that one that one bull we called in with a thirty out six case blowing across the top of us the only bull we ever bugled in those ten twelve years up there, um, and then of course you know that was in the in the nineties and, and then. Uh, you know, I met Glenn Barry up in Spokane, and he was he was doing his diaphragm calls, and I got a diaphragm call from him and worked with it. Um, and then over time, I learned how to bugle, and, and of course, in Washington and, and Idaho, you had to choose your weapon. And so I didn't do much with bow hunting. It wasn't really till I moved to Montana to work for Boone and Crockett back in 2002 that I you know, I really started focusing on bow hunting and learning to bow hunt and really working on perfecting, you know, uh, elk calling techniques and stuff. But other than that, I, I hunted, you know, Idaho, Oregon, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado for elk all, all over the years. And um, mostly, most of it's all been spot and stock rifle hunting. Oh, yes. Well, let's go back to bears because uh, I'm a huge bear advocate i think everyone should bear hunt especially in idaho i think it's an abundant resource still is and i think that uh, it only can help the elk population out i feel like hunters are key for helping balancing those good predator prey ratios and i do know for certain that bears are hard on elk calves so let's break down kind of the country you talked about so for those listening you kind of have the selway bitterroot wilderness area that hugs along the the montana border and then just to the north of that is the locksaw highway 12 kind of divides it in half it's really nasty country as well and then to the north of that is the clear water and um I wish the elk populations were amazing in the clear water because it's arguably some of the most sexiest elk country on the planet but uh every time i've been in the clear water uh, i've killed a bear in the clear water every time i've been in there it's just kind of a it's a little bit it's a lot disappointing i should say it's uh it's not what it used to be and you know what it used to be so let's talk about bears a little bit uh you were working with a biologist in the in the 70s they were studying the elk calves uh Idaho's been on the forefront of, of spring bear hunting and over-the-counter, so a very opportunistic state. Uh, you learned early on some, some good best bear practices, hunting 4 o'clock to, eve, to dark and getting in the calving areas. Uh, take us through some of your best memories of spring bear hunting in some of those countries that I mentioned. Well, when I started in the 70s, um all I had to do was drive up Highway 12 from Lowell. We'd camp there in the campground, and we'd drive up Highway 12, and you could spot bears right off the highway and, and shoot bears, you know, uh, on hillsides. Sometimes you'd have to climb up to where you could get a shot. But there were so many bears, um, and you could, you could kill one every year. And then uh, I didn't like the highway stuff, and then we started backpacking into the Selway, 
a lot of bears in the cellway. You just pick any ridge up the cellway and hike up and backpack and camp out. You could kill black bears. Um, then I like, and then I went over into the Clearwater, up into the Wheatus country, and I just fell in love with that country. It it, it was part of the Great Burn. It's these big open expanses of open country, and and uh, that's where I I really learned to hunt the bears on the elk calving grounds because there were a lot of elk in there, and the, and these big boars would just come in there and hunt them like a bird dog. And then Idaho went to a two bear uh, limit. You could buy two tags, and so. My buddy and I, we'd hunt for a black bear, and then we'd hunt for a brown color face. And we killed two bears apiece every year for, I don't know, 15 years, 18 years. But, um, you know, I felt it was important because uh, looking at Mike Schlegel's study, um, he was doing the, the work, and I looked at Lod's data and read a lot of his reports. And what he found was is that the bears are opportunists. And at that time, the forest succession, the forest coming back from the Great Burn era, um, the brush fields were were, were changing, um, coming over, turning more into the conifers, and conifers were taking over. But the bears would follow the snow line up in the spring from the river on up, and you just hunt below the snow line. And but that put the bears and the elk in the same place when the elk are calving, mm -hmm. and of course the bears were preying on these calves. I think Mike found, um, from memory now, I think about one out of every two elk calves the, what was born in those days was being killed by a bear. And it's very e easy to tell if a bear, what, what, well, they had these mortality collars on these calves, and they fly with a helicopter every morning and every evening. When they had a mortality signal, they'd drop down and go on the ground, and they'd they put together what killed the calf. And when a bear kills an elk calf, it looks like somebody skinned it out. They don't eat the paws and they don't eat the skull. And the hide, the hide will just be laid there. Um, so anyway, um, that's where I got started. And I do that here in Montana. We hunt um, we hunt over in the Gravelies and the Madison and, and that central Montana country. Again, it's a lot, it's a beautiful country and uh, these bears come in, and if you sit in the evening, you'll see a bear going through the sagebrush up in that country. Looked like he looked like a pointer dog looking, and then they'll find these calves. Two years ago, I had a bear run across the trail in front of me, and he ran into the timber, and I heard an elk calf crying, and I got the wind and went in there, and I shot the bear. He just killed the calf. I just shot him right at point blank, almost huge, big black bear, but. But we, we killed a lot of bears in those days, uh, all spot and stock. Uh, you know, we, we had a, we had a, uh, we carried our backpacks and wherever we ended up in the evening, we camped. Um, you know, just like a lot of these elk hunters are doing nowadays, uh, these bow hunters, you know, you're running and gunning and uh, wherever you end up, you, uh, you camp. Yeah, that's real interesting what you said there. I have... Definitely seen a bear take down a calf, unfortunately. And by the time I got over there, it was to the T as far as what you described. It looks like uh, barely a carcass is left, and it took the bear no time at all to eat it. It's like it's veal, man. It's fresh steak. It's like down the hatch, and all that's left is just like literally a hide and some and their feet, and that's it. And it's just a little skeleton. I mean, they 
they can eat those things so fast. And I think bears prefer what like the lowest hanging fruit, whatever they can. Like you said, they're opportunists and bears are old. A lot of bears can live a long time. You know, people get excited about a four and a half year old whitetail. Well, there's bears in their 20s and 30s. So so bears to me are fascinating. And then the thing that you said about calving is like elk usually don't have twins. They usually drop a single and uh, for the most part. And, um, you know, if one out of two is getting taken down by a bear, that's that's pretty brutal. Um, And I think the bear population is still very strong in Idaho and uh, I wish Washington State would have uh, over-the-counter spring bear. I'm still waiting for that. Um, do you think we'll ever get that? Well, in eastern Washington, way back when, when I was uh, in Pullman, I started a campaign, so to speak, uh, to get an eastern Washington spring bear season. And I used a lot of data from Idaho and uh, other areas. And it took me three years of going to the commission uh, until we finally got a drawing for spring bears in Washington. That's where that all started. Thank you. And there there were guys that I know today that thank me for that because there's some great, great spring bear hunting down in the the Blue Mountains especially. Oh, without a doubt. you, know, you you talk about the clear water and what's changed with elk hunting. You know, for me, uh, the perfection of, of the bugle, uh, there's so many different really high quality bugles and people have really learned how to use them. And uh, that's extremely effective during the archery season. Uh, the other things that have changed is technology with archery equipment. Uh, you know, I had an old Golden Eagle bow back 25, 30 years ago, and and uh, it's amazing how that technology has changed. Um, and then the lightweight gear. And here in Montana, I find young guys with their sleeping in hammocks 10, 10, 15 miles from the trailhead. You know, I've got my horses and mules now, so I go wherever, but I run into these guys all the time, and I have to hand it to them because these guys are good. They hunt hard. Um, and uh, they've got the right stuff. Uh, as far as the Clearwater goes, you said what you know. You what is what has changed? Well, I, I watched that Clearwater go from so many elk you couldn't believe it to nothing. I mean, I was just in there last summer uh, because I had a friend, a couple of friends that wanted to bow hunt it. We went in and I looked at all my old haunts, went to my old camps. The trails are still two feet wide and two feet deep, but they're all overgrown. You can hardly find them. I mean, it's unreal. Uh, there's nothing in there but a huge motocross uh, uh, trail that the Forest Service has in there now. And there's, we, we put up cameras, and we had, in a month and a half time, we had one five little five-point bull and a couple cows on one camera. But anyway, the th- four things happened. One, we had some really severe winters, you know, back in the, in the early 90s. And and the winter kill was horrendous. And then about that time, we got the wolves. And the the impact of the wolves in the Clearwater is unreal. I mean, people talk about pre-wolf in the Clearwater, but you can't just blame it on the wolves. There's a lot of lions in there. And also the forest succession has changed the habitat. 
So you've got four things. One, you had a re some really bad winters, a lot of winter kill. Then you had to put the wolves on top of that. Then you've got the bears on the, you know, in there on the calves. And then you've got the habitat changing. The soils in there, uh, Jim Peake is a biologist that I respect that has done a lot of work with that, but it's a batholithic kind of a soil. It's not a good soil to grow, you know, uh, forage. And so as that forest succession has changed, I mean, it's completely different in there now. It's so thick with the brush that's taken over and all of the, there used to be these big fern patches and big open, open ridges and things. They're just choked full of horse, full of uh, full of brush. You can barely get through it with a horse or a mule. And so, you know, all that has changed. I don't know if the clear water will ever come back. Um, I see the Forest Service has a a new EIS out in terms of how they're going to manage it. Uh, it's a great place to ride motorbikes if you've got a if you've got a motorbike, but um, boy, there's just nothing in there for elk. Mm. Just nothing. Yeah, and the habitat isn't there. And of course, you, you lay the wolves on top of it. Nobody, you know, it's really difficult to get those wolves because the access is so bad. Yeah, there's definitely not much for trapping. <clears throat> you can't really get in there from south of Superior too much over Hoodoo. Um, you can come in off the Dorshack Reservoir side and come in from the south, but it's just not conducive for trappers. And it uh, trappers are, are kind of a what we need uh i am constantly reading about fishing game doing some helicopter gunning in there in fact i just read they did i think they got 17 wolves from the helicopter and i know i've read that at least three or four times in the last 10 years of them going in there and and doing that and uh, at a premium too right like a lot of their budget gets just crushed by helicopter fuel and doing, I mean, you're not going to shoot wolves every time you fly in there. So economically, biologically, sustainability, I don't, I don't know if, uh, I wish you were wrong, but I think you're probably right. I don't know if it ever will be the same. And it's just a shame because we're talking some of the most pristine country you've ever seen, uh, which is unfortunate. And, and I think the whole panhandle, northern Idaho area, you know, that's kind of home base for me. That's where I learned how to elk hunt. And uh, that was my training grounds. And it was great. But uh, I've definitely watched it change. And uh, it's unfortunate. So you've been a lot of places, George. Where is your favorite place to hunt elk based on solely using your horses and being in love with the country, regardless of the elk numbers and wolf densities? You've hunted a lot. Where's your favorite just country to hunt? Well, I love the Madison Valley, the, that area around Ennis, the Madison Range. Uh, and the gravelies are nice. There's a lot of access in the gravelies. Uh, the crazies are an unbelievable place. Um, access is really difficult because of the checkerboard uh, in there. But... Um, you know, I, I like that central Montana mountain stuff. I've hunted out east, you know, but that's kind of an artificial thing out there in, in the desert. Those elk have come in. It's, they're mostly all on private land, and um, the access is difficult. But, you know, I, I, I really like, like I say, the, uh, the, uh, 
the central Montana. The other place I've hunted for the last 20 years is the Salmon River Wilderness. And, uh, you know, again, there are three of us that have hunted that. Um, seldom ever do we not get three bulls. But I'll tell you this, that the wolves have had an unbelievable impact in there. It's not a habitat issue. It's a wolf issue in there. And it's the same thing. You can shoot a few that get down by the Salmon River driving south out of, you know, down river out of, out of North Fork. But the majority of those wolves are pretty well protected back in there. And the, there's an outfitter that hunts the area where we hunt. One year he killed more wolves with his clients than he did elk. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I've got pictures of 11 wolves in a wallow below our camp about five years ago. But uh, we've watched that change from where, you know, the first day we'd get two, two six-point bulls and in two days we'd have three to now you have to hustle. You really have to hustle and you just don't see the elk numbers. And, and then you go in there, you were talking with those guys from stuck in the rut. You know, bull, those elk, those wolves love to run the, the ridges. And whenever there's a log, they like to jump up on the log and, and off and you'll find their tracks all over. And in fact, we've killed uh, two wolves in there um, while we we're elk hunting. This last fall, my hunting partner uh, actually howled one in. So it's it's really changed that. The wolves have had a huge impact all over Idaho and as well as, as, as Western Montana. Um, the other thing that we have here in Western Montana that you don't have in Idaho is grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has changed a lot, especially for bow hunters. Uh, we have a lot of... Uh, a lot more every year uh, situations where we have bow hunters you know, running into a sow bear and getting attacked. Um, that happens in, in more and more, more uh, situations. And the bears will come to a cow call. They will flat come to it. Years ago, back in Kelly Creek, we called in wolves. You know, back in the early 90s, before anybody knew there were wolves in there, we call, we'd call bears with a varmint call in the spring and we we called in three wolves one time up on cook mountain <laughs> and ridiculous. in uh if you're going to be blowing a varmint call you know around spring bear hunting or blowing a cow call the, 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 you you could just as easily call in a grizzly because there's a grizzly in almost every drainage from missoula to the canadian border wow so speaking of grizzly bears didn't you don't you have a history in working with montana fish wildlife and parks um doing some sort of conservation projects on grizzly bears? I did. After I retired from Boone and Crockett, I worked as the executive director for the Montana Fish and Game Foundation. We we raised a, a lot of money for their grizzly bear management. Um, you know, before, well, up in the Northern Continental Divide area, uh, one of the challenges to, op to, to delisting has to do with connectivity between the various mountain ranges and the cabinets are good bear habitat but they needed more bears and so the federal government uh, came in and did an experimental deal U.S. Fish and Wildlife to see if they could capture uh, young female bears and move them to the cabinets and see if they would stay there and breed and they figured out it would work and so Montana Fish and Game took that over and so uh, each year they would trap 
a couple females that had not had any interactions with humans and we're about a three-year-old bear and we perfected the ways to use uh, well the early trail cameras cameras that one of our biologists Tim Manley built himself in a in an ammo can uh, but, uh, but cameras like that so you could identify what kind of a bear it was a male or a female maybe and then we set these big culvert traps and then we captured those bears and moved them and that's still going on now uh, the other part of that had to do with uh, what they call trend monitoring. They, they put uh, satellite collars on sow bears and uh, release them back into their habitat so they can track where they go and, and that helps them understand the bear densities. And then the third one are the management bears, the bears that they get in trouble. And, uh, you know, the, the more bears are, are euthanized in Montana every year for killing somebody's chickens than anything else. Um, yep. Chicken is the grizzly bear's favorite food, and uh, so you know. Uh, and there are a lot of people that, that live out, you know, basically almost off the grid, and they're raising chickens and pigs and maybe a calf or two out there, all over Montana. You talked about being up there in the Selkirks and stuff, and and uh, the guys stuck in the rut. You know, talked about grizzlies up there. Well, uh, those bears come down into the valleys and. They find a, a chicken coop that's not electrified. They're going to be there, and uh, I don't know how many they had to put down this year. A lot for all kinds of reasons, but most of it's getting into bird feeders and you know uh, cattle, uh, cattle feed stuff like that. Do you think, in your lifetime, and potentially mine, we will ever have a grizzly bear season in the lower 48? Well. <laughs> We're hoping, we're hoping we have, we have plenty of bears. It's not a problem of having, uh, you know, uh, uh, not enough bears. It's the politics and it's the, you know, uh, it's the, uh, it's the public that doesn't hunt that, that doesn't understand the real impact of these bears as well as the wolves on the landscape. I mean, it's dramatically different now. If you're going to hunt Western Montana, you, uh, you're going to think about hunting with your buddy with your bow hunting and even rifle hunting, because you never know when you'll walk up on. And just last week, you know, uh, the Boone and Crockett Club has a ranch up by Depuyer, and they, they they allow public, you know, the public to hunt on it. Well, they're always they're about four sow bears on that ranch all the time. I see them up there. I find their tracks. Uh, you know, you almost always see them in the fall when you're hunting. Well, uh, just last week, uh, there's a bear that uh, she was 17 years old. She's been in that area on the Boone and Crockett and, and other ranches up there all her life. She's never gotten into trouble, never had a problem. And last week, she's down, clear down in the creek, half almost down to the town of Depuyer, and some guy's out taking a hike, and he, he walked right up on her, and she attacked him and he shot her with a 44 and and uh, she ran off and uh, fish and game came in the, in the well the next morning with a helicopter and finally they found her and he'd shot her a couple times in the head and they had to they had to euthanize her but but a couple days later her three little cubs showed up they're about 12 pounds a piece you know little puppy dogs mm. and uh, one of the ranchers there uh, saw him along the road and caught him and and put them in a in a uh, garbage 
plastic garbage can and finally got the, the bear biologist over and they took him to Helena where they have a, 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 a wildlife rehab place. And what they'll do with those three cubs is probably try and find a zoo that needs a grizzly bear. But it's harder and harder to do because there are a lot of grizzly bears out there. Yeah. But yeah, it happens all the time, there, there, you know, and you never know where you're going to find one. Oh, man. Well, I do sure hope we can manage it through the sportsmen. I think they're willing to pay good dollars and they can generate revenue. And uh, I, I don't know. We'll see. It is very political, something I'm not very – I don't have a lot of tolerance for being diplomatic and playing the game, so to speak. But I sure hope that somebody is uh, – let me ask you this, because I, Boone and Crockett, I've never been a member. You were the CEO. Uh, what what were you guys doing when you were at the helm, and how? what are they up to nowadays if you've been following? Well, you know, Boone and Crockett is the oldest conservation organization in the country. Uh, it was started by Teddy Roosevelt 130 years ago, and Boone and Crockett was responsible for a lot of the the original wildlife conservation uh, initiatives. You know, the bison issue in Yellowstone Park, they were, uh, they were advocates for and got a lot uh, accomplished with establishing national wildlife refuges early on. But at the time, they had a lot of wealthy New Yorkers, people from that area that were government leaders and aristocrats, and... Uh, in those days, if you knew somebody, you could, get, you could get things done. They got a lot done in the early years. And the club is limited to 100 regular members. It always has been uh, since the beginning. Hmm. And so with only 100 members, it's not like the Oak Foundation with thousands of people. Uh, 100 regular members, most of them were, were you know, uh, fairly wealthy individuals. And so they uh, were real effective for about 10, 15 years. But then... Um, as the country began to grow, they, they kind of fell back on the Boone and Crockett records program. Yeah. And if you talk to anybody today about Boone and Crockett, they say, yeah, it's a, you know, they keep records. They still do. But um, I was recruited as a regular club member back in, in 1998, 30 years ago and uh, invited to join. And at the time, uh, they wanted to, the club wanted to uh, expand its conservation work. And their, their vision was to buy a ranch somewhere in the West where they could have good wildlife values and also a viable ranching operation. They also wanted to start a university program for training professionals. And they ended up... Uh, buying the ranch in Montana uh, by Depuyer. It's around 5,000 acres. It's a cattle ranch. And using it as a demonstration property for a wildlife program at the University of Montana. And we raised the money to hire a professor there, an endowed chair. And, and from that, um, you know, that was where that vision started 30 years ago. Now, uh, the club still only has 100 regular members. They have associates. Who have no vote, but um, and really don't have a voice. They also have professional members who are members of, of the you know like the Park Service and Fish and Game and biologists. 
but the regular members pretty much run it. With only 100 members, you only have so much reach. So they've been focusing on uh, initiatives in Washington, D.C. Uh, during my time, uh, we developed a, uh, a professional development program uh, for wildlife managers that's still taught in Washington, D.C. Um, they're active with various, uh, you know, government uh, or I guess government entities, uh, the, the Department of Interior and so on, but uh, they don't have anywhere near the reach that most like Ducks Unlimited and Elk Foundation and, and all the, those others do. But their mission has always been different. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not a, a land trust like the Oak Foundation or Mule Deer or, or Duck. So uh, they've been fairly effective. And with the number of, of individuals that they have in as regular members um, and then with their professional members, they're pretty effective. But they're, they don't have the reach that a lot of these other outfits do. They don't have, they don't have, they're not like Safari Club, with, which has a huge uh, war chest and a lot of money to spend on, you know, on, uh, well, legal issues, the legal defense fund that Safari Club has, which is a good thing. But so anyway, that's where they are. They're, they're most well known for the, the records program, but they do have the university programs now and, and they still have the ranch that they use in connection with the University of Montana. And then, like I say, in, in the last five or six years with the Trump administration, they've had some pretty good, uh, you know, representation in a lot of stuff with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and so on. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think they're ever going to go away from their limiting uh, the amount of members? Or do you think that's just kind of set in stone? I don't think that's going to change. Um, you know, they have the associates program, uh, but you don't know down the road. I mean, they were talking the other day about having, you know, uh, I, they only had like three staff members when I was hired after I retired at WSU hired to come to Missoula, uh, and, you know, and, and be the club's executive. Uh, they only had like four staff members and I built the staff up to 12, you know, and, and, um, built the, you know, built the education center up in Depuyer and, and did the Moon the Crockett building in Missoula and raised the money for the endowed chair and all that stuff. And then I retired, but, but, uh, they've got, you know, a, a staff that really works for the club members and the club committees, but, but the way the club is structured organizationally, I just don't see that changing. Mm, I see. Well, here we are, 2020, George. Um, when you look back at your extensive outdoor history, what does your crystal ball show um, as far as State of the Union when it comes to elk, wildlife, elk specifically, lower 48, the way we're practicing and managing um, you've seen the ballot initiatives in Colorado with wolf quote reintroduction from your perspective. And I feel like it's one with a lot of history, a lot of experience, a lot of reps with biologies. You have a PhD, you have a scientific background. What direction are we going? Where do we need to change course? What do we need to keep the same? 
Well, we need to keep attracting young, eager hunters, as I call them. Hunters that are, that, that are committed and uh, want to get involved. We've got to be involved in organizations like Elk Foundation, Mule Deer, uh, you know, uh, other organizations, Safari Club as well, and Boone and Crockett Associates. You've got to be involved. And uh, you know, the, the number of hunters has been dropping over time. Um, a lot of that's related to access and opportunity. But our young hunters, uh, in, you know, need to, to get involved. If you look at the Boone and Crockett Club, most people are, you know, they're old. A lot of young associates, but the Oak Foundation has, a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people from one end to the other in terms of age. But uh, you got to get involved, and you got to get involved with your local state game departments. Uh, have you ever been to a commission meeting? You know, pay attention to what the commission is doing, and uh, you can have an impact. I learned that you could have an impact. One with the spike only uh, seasons, and what we have now, because of my involvement, and then the, the spring bear hunting in Washington, um, you can have an impact, and so. Uh, it's not, it's, it's more than just joining a club like the Elk Foundation, but get involved, be an active participant. And I think the place to start is with your fish and game commissioners in your local community, get to know who they are, talk to them, and then, uh, go to commission meetings and learn and talk to the biologists, learn who they are. You know, the biologists are changing. We don't have the old brown shoe biologists that are hunters anymore. We have a lot of young people that have come into the profession that uh, are very bright. They do great statistics. They're not hunters. They, they have a science background and they know how to do uh, aerial counts maybe, and they knew how to do that. But when they start proposing seasons in that, uh, go to your public hearings. And here in Montana, before they have any seasons, you know, they have public hearings and you've got to go there and you've got to be, be, uh, get to know the biologists and be active. So, um, but we can't get complacent. And the wolf thing, you know, the guys from Stuck in the Rut, you look at all of the, all of the, all of the death threats they've gotten and all that stuff. There are people that, you know, that, that uh, assign Intellectually, they assign human personalities to animals like wolves. They treat the wolves like their own German shepherd. They're not the same. They're not the same. You know, they treat grizzly bears like some iconic species. Well, we need grizzly bears on the landscape, but we need to manage them. And if you go back in history, the real conservationists in our country are our hunters. And our young hunters are the conservationists of the future. Guys like you, guys like Dirk, you know, the guys that stuck in the rut. Those guys and all of the people that are watching the podcasts and, and doing all this stuff, they are, you know, the conservationists of the future. And they're the ones that are going to really determine, you know, where this all goes. But it, it, when it's not going to get there, you know, if we're, Content taking shooting big elk and putting them on Facebook. You got to get out there and and get with it. There you go, guys. There's your there's your straight up. I I feel challenged by that. You know, I'm a 
I'm the guy. I'm not a member of uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and I haven't been for a while. Um, I'm I'm fairly outspoken on what I believe, and I feel like they're doing a way better job nowadays. I'm thinking about rejoining. Uh, but there was a while there where they were slow, too slow to the wolf um, party, so to speak. And, and I've been real straightforward with those guys on that. And I know they've had a change in leadership. And quite honestly, I'd give them more than a passing grade as of late. Um, I am a lifetime member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, but sometimes I, I understand their main mission, which I appreciate. But sometimes I feel like they're just pretty weak when it comes to advocating predator management um who else and then i'm a member of the foundation for wildlife management here in idaho and they're doing a great job of putting not a bounty but reimbursing trappers and wolf hunters here in the state of idaho and i have this podcast this platform i try to be as transparent as possible but my number one job right now is to make sure that my kids get exposed to the hunting lifestyle which obviously that's not going to be too hard for me to do, but I still feel challenged by your words, George. I got to do more. We got to do more. It's not about just posting a picture of an elk on Instagram. Uh, we got to take action, and uh, I hope that my sons as sons get to hear bugles, chase those bugles, and, and be in the wild. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I do. I do. And, you know, I'm at, I'm at the end of the line. <laughs> <laughs> but the guys like you are going to be the ones that are going to be the legacies of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was on the Oak Foundation board. In fact, I was chairman of the board about the time uh, they started to take the wolf issue more, I guess, more in-house. The Oak Foundation was formed as a land trust, and it was about habitat, habitat, habitat. They wanted to raise money for habitat. But uh, back when David Allen came on as the president, they realized that uh, they had to get involved with the predator issue. They had to get involved with the wolf issue. The sportsmen from wildlife in Utah, whether you, you know, you like Don Pay and his guys or not, they had a big impact in that wolf delisting. The Elk Foundation added some muscle, but those organizations have got to get more involved politically. And uh, uh, you know, you you have to move from the land trust mission, which is important to a more advocacy mission like Safari Club, if you want, you know, if you want to keep moving this ball. Well, if a guy's sitting on the sidelines right now and maybe he's in a position where he's understanding that there is no influence by being a keyboard warrior on Facebook and getting in arguments with people there and maybe they actually want to write a check, put their money where their mouth is. Give us the top three, in your opinion. I, I guess we're going to say nonprofits that are for, that are doing great things for wildlife and the future of wildlife. Well, um, Elk Foundation has certainly emerged, you know, as a, a really solid organization. Um, and you can get involved with your local chapter. And, uh, you know, uh, Safari Club, uh, whether you whether you like Safari Club or not, in terms of, you know, uh, their high fence positions and stuff, that's a good organization because they have a legislative arm. They have a legislative arm. Um, so those are two. 
uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, you know, they have a left-leaning uh, kind of a, of a position, but they get out there and get it done, it's, especially in protecting, uh, you know, wildlife habitats and making sure that we have access, because access is is really important. So those are probably three. Um, more than that, you know, take a look locally. And, uh, you know, and maybe some of your listeners and, and, and so on live in the East. That doesn't mean you can't pay attention to what these Western Fish and Game commissions are doing, you know, because your vote counts, your voice counts. You can call a commissioner. You know, I have a friend in Washington who is a former student in Washington State, and uh, this year Idaho changed how they uh, sold their their elk tags. At a certain point in time, they they took all of the zone tags and dumped them into a pool, and all of a sudden they were gone. And he's a hardcore bow hunter. He ended up uh, talking directly to one of the commissioners, and uh, developed a relationship with him. And 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 he by himself got them to make exceptions, uh, you know, to that to that rule that they they imposed last summer to just take all of the cap zone leftover tags at a certain time and dump them into a, a, a single pool. And so he got tags and so did his friend and other people that, that asked. So you can be effective even if you don't live in the state. Yeah, I, I definitely feel challenged there. Uh, Sportsman's Alliance is another one of my favorites. Uh, I think they're, they're in Washington, D.C., uh, fighting lobbyists and working hard and putting their money where their mouth is. They do a great job. George, I know we, yeah. we're short on time here. I, I want to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, this is mainly for my dad. And uh, he's 64. He and I started elk hunting together. And he's getting older. But uh, he's pretty passionate about elk hunting. So what he did is he went out and bought two horses. I kid you not. And uh, he did that this last spring. He keeps them about five miles away from my house. And he's up there every night riding them and training them. And he's getting ready to be to do what you do. And he is in, the, in the, that learning curve of getting to know horses. Fortunately, his wife grew up around horses and whatnot. But they're still both learning the process, if you will. And he wants me to hunt with him off horses, which I have many times uh, in different states. And I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of hunting with horses. It's a lot of maintenance and work and care. And I'm a little more of a put my head down and chase elk. But what are, in your opinion, some best practices when it comes to learning how to utilize stock to hunt elk? Well, I've been writing a... Uh column for elk hunter magazine now western hunter for the last five or six years called the hunting horseman mm -hmm. and so what you should do is is go online and go back and look at those back issues because uh, i don't just write about packing and tying knots I, I write about how you you can use stock strategically in hunting elk and uh, you know it's it's different than just packing in a big camp and and a bunch of dudes but with your dad <clears throat> he's got two animals get a good pack saddle for one you can walk he can ride and lead a pack animal and with the lightweight gear that's out there today uh with a riding horse and a pack horse 
you can get into some really good country. He can ride, you can walk, you can carry your backpack with your, your sleeping bag and, and, and gear, and he can, he can have, you know, a, a good quality tent and his gear and some horse feed on the pack horse. You kill an animal, uh, kill an elk, you quarter it. You could walk out with two horses with the, with the elk and come back, ride back and get him and bring him out. You know, there, you can do all, a lot of that. And, and uh, we'll find that you can, you can get back away. My, my success has largely been finding places where nobody else goes mm. and trying to find elk, undisturbed elk to hunt. And I think you'll find that it's going to really broaden, uh, you know, your ability and his ability to get into the back country. I'm 78. And I still go wherever I want to go. The guys I hunt with are in there anywhere from 20 to 40. So, but you know, great for your dad. And he's great to have you. The best, the best hunting partner you'll ever have is your father or your mother. And, and, you know, if you look at watch Western hunter, Nate Simmons, dad was with him for years. And of every place Nate goes, I really admire him as a really good bow hunter and really good hunter and when he lost his dad it changed everything for nate but you know the legacy his dad left was uh getting nate uh hooked up on how to use some horses in in hunting yeah yeah and i do agree nate is the one of my favorites in the industry and george you are 78 years young brother i'm telling you what you're still getting after it i want to be like you when i grow up (laughs) well thank you Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. Um, I noticed you're on Instagram now. Uh, When did you pull the trigger on that, my man? Well, I've been on Instagram for a couple years, a little bit, you know. Um, Jenna Waller kind of got me started on it. I I was on Facebook for quite a long time. And Facebook's good because I keep up with a lot of my former students and faculty from WSU and my children. But... um, I got on Instagram. I like Instagram. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good platform. No doubt. And uh, you don't, you don't have as much junk on Instagram as you, as I see on Facebook. I, I just hate these political ads and things on Facebook. No, I couldn't agree more. So G Bettis uh, is the Instagram handle. He, I did know you wrote for Western. I did. And I, in fact, I still get the one magazine I still get, and I'm great friends with Chris Denham. And so I've always read your stuff, but uh, I got a stack of magazines I'm going to go give to my dad and say, hey, study up, partner, and teach me what you learn. And uh, I'll let you know how the process goes this year. Um, I'm still waiting for some draw results to come out, George. We got Montana coming up. Uh, I'm not a resident, obviously, so uh, hoping just to draw a general uh, New Mexico. Did you put in for New Mexico yourself? No, I put in for uh, Montana. I've got another chance to draw a really good bull tag here. And then I always apply for Idaho and uh, Colorado. I, I hunt with a couple young, three young guys, and uh, they always get deer tags. And I'll buy a OTC elk tag if, if it doesn't interfere with my Montana hunt. So, yeah, those are, those are the three states I primarily focus on now because <laughs> I'll, I'll die before I can draw some of those other tags. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Always thinking about where I'm going to be and daydreaming about the next hunt. And uh, it'll be here before we know it. And I hope our life and our world 
is comes back to normal here shortly. Are you, are you quarantined up pretty good right now? Well, I've got a little 40 acre place south of Missoula. So I got a lot of things to do here. My wife goes to the grocery store, you know, we've got three cases in our County and it's, you know, Montana's different New York city. And so, you know, you just lay low, you don't get out and, and get exposed to a lot of other people. And we're going to make a Costco run with our masks on, on Thursday morning at, at eight o'clock <laughs> <But, laughs> when they let the old folks in, but no, it, you just you just got to do what we're doing. You you've got to you've got to keep the social distancing because that works. That works. George, thank you for your time so much. I hope I get to meet you, person to person, man to man. Um, I'll be driving through your your neck of the woods several times this fall. So uh, I wish you the best. Let's stay in touch. And uh, thanks for coming on, guys. Remember, separation is in the preparation. Keep working hard. Take advantage of this time that you are at home. All those things you put off, put them at the top of your list, and uh, keep working hard in the name of Better Elk Hunting. We'll catch you on the next one. See, I told you that'd be a good show. George, thank you if you're listening still for coming on. You are a living legend. I definitely want to be like you when I grow up. Oh, man, that guy was awesome. Well, this was a good week to to kind of hopefully get closer to coming out the other side of this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, hopefully you're you're like me and you've gotten a lot of honeydews and anything on the back burner is no longer there. We took care of it. We handled it. We can't wait for summer and just get back to some normal life stuff and uh, have enjoyed this time with family and, and really just staying home, chilling, working on things. Love it. So Right now, working on finishing up 20 for 20. I got one video that I have left to edit, and then uh, I'll get that PDF done, and then we'll have 20 for 20. That's going to probably be live on Monday. So that's 20 workouts for 20 bucks that are under 20 minutes, and all you need for equipment is either a dumbbell or a sandbag, and that's it. And you can do all the workouts, and they're awesome. So that's going to be my gateway drug to get you to do 90 days to freedom or 21 days to elk shape is the 20 for 20. I wanted to come up with something super affordable, but I didn't want to just type something out. I had to have video-supported workouts so you can watch the workouts, see how they're done. And it's all private videos, so I like to do it right. That's what we did. I also just ordered the AAE elk shape veins. Those are the Max Stealth. Those are going to be getting shipped to me soon. I'll have those on the website. I'm pretty stoked about that. If you guys are interested in any of our discount codes, I always put them in the show notes. So just check those if you're in the market and you need to save as much as possible, which I wouldn't blame you. Make sure that you check out those discount codes. And all I ask that you guys do for for me, for listening to this podcast and keeping it free is tell a friend about the podcast. Tell them, hey, there's the Elk Shape Podcast. It's blue collar. They talk elk hunting. They talk fitness. They talk personal development. It's worth a listen. Appreciate you guys. Have a great week. We'll catch you on the next one.